I'm with uh, Greg Johansson. Hi, Greg. Hi. So, um, you're um, very much Mr. Hakomi, aren't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been with uh, Hakomi for many years, one of the, one of the founding uh, trainers of the Institute. How did you how did you get to uh, do that? You know, you you started out in life being a minister, didn't you? Um, yeah, I did, and uh, well, I think I think like a lot of things in my life, it just all kind of fall by mistake, and uh, one thing leads to another. Um, uh, but yeah, I was I'm an ordained uh, United Methodist minister, and uh, and when I was doing theological training in uh, Atlanta, I got into a lot of what's called clinical pastoral education and, and pastoral counseling. And that was all um, uh, pretty much a psychodynamic approach. It was kind of influenced by Tom Malone and Carl Whitaker and Harry Stack Sullivan, kind of a relational psychodynamic approach where, where the idea was that... Uh, you know, the relationship is the therapy, and um, so I got heavily immersed in that. And one of the uh, one of the things that was said without saying it was that that was the real stuff, and anything else was kind of froth on the water. Um, but when we left Atlanta and went back to Oregon, um, I was involved in ministry there. Uh, um, wife got involved in therapy by mistake with a guy named uh, Don Nickerson who, um, who who had a pastoral background. That was, I think, the reason we went to him, but it turns out he was having to be the best gestalt therapist in town and um, and obviously did good work. And so the experience of that kind of won out over the, the theory that it wasn't supposed to be any good. Um, <laughs> And so I got, you know, deeply involved in experiential therapies, gestalt, bioenergetics, and psychodrama, and so forth. And then, uh, and Don had a center. And one day he he, um, he brought in Ron Kurtz, who had, who had just published a book called The Body Reveals, you know, kind of with psychology of the body. And um, so we watched him work, and uh, and there's obviously something really right about what he was doing. Um, uh, and myself and others, others who had studied with him back then, this was like in late 70s, um, you know, I kind of asked him what he was doing, and um, and he didn't exactly know, um, because on the one hand, he's a genius, literally, in, in math and physics and such things, and... Uh, but on the other hand, he was working very intuitively and spontaneously and drawing from all kinds of sources and and uh, uh, had a background in Buddhism and Taoism and all kinds of things. And, and so about that time, uh, again, a number of us kind of invited him to study himself, kind of like it was the NLP days when the structure of magic was published and... and uh, you know, you, you look at master therapists to see what they're doing, to see if there's anything you could learn from it. And so studying himself and our studying him and so forth, 
over three or four years, um, we actually did discover that there was an underlying method uh, that you could actually teach to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a linear method that, that goes along with goes along with uh, you know, keying off the spontaneous in the work. Um, and so anyway, when he finally figured out there's a method you could teach to other people, uh, then the Hakomi Institute itself was founded in the early 80s, and we started offering workshops and, and trainings to other folks. And, um, so I've been been with it um, ever ever since. Mm, yeah. So that's a that's a very uh, very interesting. Uh, uh, story in a way that for you personally uh, it was a triumph of experience over the logic of the training you had received and uh, in terms of Hakomi it was um, very much observing the reality of this intuitive um, healing flow uh, in order to discover the method in it so in both cases very much sticking to the experience yeah, very much so. Uh, I think we all have a sense of how limiting just talk therapy is when you talk about experience as opposed to entering into it. And uh, and again, I had that interpersonal psychodynamic background, you know, relational background. And one additional aspect that Hakomi brought forward was the, the intrapsychic uh, aspect that you can that the person themselves can be in touch with their own experience. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a deep internal wisdom uh, that you can invite people into. Uh, so so that helped combine the, the interpersonal and the intrapsychic and, and uh, made for a fuller therapy. Uh, I think I've always been driven over the years. Um, well, I'm still driven by... Uh, by what it means, what human transformation means, and, and and what that's about, and how you can support it, and uh, um, I'm always kind of looking for the next piece, mm -hmm. and so forth. So, um, so that's driven me to study pretty deeply and and, and widely over the years, because I'm always inspired, and I'm always left with questions, or you know, dissatisfied about you know what we're not getting what we're not doing what we're, what we're missing and one of the things that uh, you have paid a lot of attention to is mindfulness yeah yeah um, and I think that's uh, that, that, that's Ron's real brilliant contribution to the field is uh, not just using mindfulness as an adjunct to therapy which some people have had um, good luck with uh, but actually, using mindfulness as the the main therapeutic tool within a session, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and so, so if you think of therapy in terms of the organization of experience, that you know we all organize our experience, we all make sense of our experience, make you know try to find meaningful ways to. Uh, understand the world and ourselves in it. Uh, once we make sense of the world, that's not a therapy issue, but um, 
trouble is a lot of us make sense of the world in such a way that we kind of organize out certain things, um, like support or intimacy or authenticity or who knows what. And, uh, mm-hmm. and mindfulness, yeah, really is the premier tool for being able to study your experience as opposed to simply being at the mercy of it. Um, yeah. You know, Watzlowick and so forth, all those folks, they said, you know, consciousness is the problem. <clears throat> and so, you know, they developed hypnotic ways or to get around it. But mindfulness actually allows you to uh, study consciousness and, and take a step back, get distance from it, and, and notice um, what we do to create our worlds to construct it. Um, so getting that distance is a, is a very powerful thing and, and and a very experiential thing because you can't do it without being highly attuned to present moment experience. Yeah, yeah. So, so mindfulness is one of these words that can be intimidating to some people because maybe uh, it can evoke the idea of being so in tune with the moment that it's almost beyond normal. Um, And obviously that's not the way that um, you use it in a session. So do you want to talk a little bit more about um, what mindfulness is within the context of experiential therapy? Yeah. Well, I think it's probably helpful to, excuse me, got a little frog in my throat, um, to contrast with ordinary consciousness, which carries us through most of the day, and uh, one of the characteristics of ordinary consciousness is that our you know, awareness is kind of out there in the world, uh, attending to whatever we're doing, which means we are doing something, you know, we have, we're, have some plan, some agenda, um, and uh, it, well, most of what we do is is automatic. You know, we don't have to think about it. You, you know, you don't have to think about shifting gears in the car if you're an experienced driver, and um, and that's good. Like you, you wouldn't want to have to be aware of all these all these things. Uh, and so, normally, ordinary consciousness, you know, carries us through the day, and and it's just fine. Um, but if you again, if you in your life, if you start to notice that, um, uh, well, that you're unhappy on, on some level, uh, it, it could be that you're, well, it could be that you're in an unhappy situation, uh, you know, ex- externally. Mm-hmm. It could be that it, it could be that internally, uh, you know, you're organizing your life in, 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 in such a way that uh, adds unnecessary suffering to the you know, the, the life we already have. Mm-hmm. And so if you get a little suspicious or curious about how you're organizing the world and you wonder why you can't enjoy going to a party when your friend can, you know, your, your friend's having a good time and you and you kind of feel like you're starving in the midst of a banquet, you know, you get curious about that, then mindfulness can be a very um, powerful tool to help you be curious and I think curiosity is a good word. Uh, you know, like, yeah, mindful is kind of a technical Buddhist word in, in, in one way, but um, 
it is is helping um, yeah helping yourself get curious about yourself study yourself take yourself under observation um, and uh, which means slowing down and you know turning your awareness toward present moment ex- experience and uh, um, and kind of being in more of a receptive mode where you uh, you kind of give up your agendas and trying to prove anything or do anything and and uh, just check in with what is. So I want to maybe just uh, um, summarize a bit of what I'm hearing. There's something where uh, it starts, it's sparked by curiosity, not just taking for granted that what you do automatically is the only way to do things. Um, a sense of looking a little bit as if from the outside at what's happening, uh, reflecting on it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of saying hi to yourself. Um, and again, sometimes it's a little it's a little hard to sort out. Um, like one time, this one woman came to me and uh, wanted to do a session and. Uh, she says I'm sad, and because uh, my boyfriend just left me, and um, and so I said like, well, you know that sounds appropriate. You know your boyfriend leaves you, and you know there's grief. You feel sad, so you know it doesn't exactly sound like a therapy issue. It's, it's mm-hmm. um, like that's life. Um, and she says, yeah. She says, well, yeah, I know, but on the other hand, this is the fourth time this has happened in a row where I go through this relationship and, uh, you know, we go through this certain thing and the guy ends up leaving and I end up sad. And so, you know, it makes me curious about, you know, why do I end up in these semi-abusive relationships all the time? Mm-hmm. So I feel like, oh, okay, all right. So there's a, there's a habit or a pattern here that we might be useful to get curious about and, and, and so we did um, you know I mean we started into a therapeutic process and started to mindfully um, you know check in more closely with her experience and what made her attracted to certain uh, kinds of guys and so forth and, uh, and and the great thing about mindfulness is, is if you become aware of some aspect of your creation and mindfulness Part of the underlying theory is that life is a creative act, at least in part. You know, we're certainly co-creators of our our world, and so that means any sensation or feeling or memory or posture or anything uh, is something we've created. And if you become mindful of it, and it, it's like you start following a thread that goes backward or or goes from the surface structure. Uh, more deeply into the core organizing beliefs that that created that something we started with. So you go from the creation to the creator, and the, and the creator is usually some you know belief about uh, life and, and and the world. Um, and again, it might be might be a problematic belief. Uh, you know, like if you think that if you had the experience as a young person that uh, you weren't supported. And it might have been totally true. Uh, uh, 
you know, in that situation growing up, but, but then you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you still think you're not supported when, and the truth is there's people all around you who are willing to support you in certain ways. So, if mindfulness helps access those core beliefs and helps you update the files and, uh, you know, bring in new, uh, open yourself to a wider reality and to a, you know, a richer possibility for life. Um, but of course, that's a scary thing. If you get close to, if you go down deep into an issue about support and you realize that, um, you know, you did have these core foundational experiences of not being supported, the possibility of allowing in support later on can really scare you because, you know, you, your unconscious says, like, oh, wait a minute, the last time we allowed ourselves to be supported, we were, you know, deeply disappointed. And so, you know, working with barriers uh, is a fundamental part of, of the work, but, but mindfulness helps you access those barriers and, and get clear about what they are and what they need. So maybe we can come back later to the beliefs that you mentioned, but wanted to thank you for your description there of um, examining things because it made a little more clear what you had said earlier about mindfulness being a state of being receptive. And so what you described, this process, is not a process of forcing change, but a process of being very open um, to seeing what comes up and to notice what comes up um, as a very uh, important prerequisite to any change happening. Yeah, that's, that's well said. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about change uh, without force. And we're also talking about lazy therapists uh, because if, if someone feels safe enough with you uh, to turn their awareness inward you know, toward their felt present experience, uh, and you think of them in terms of a living organic system, not a machine or something, but um, they will uh, they will go to where they need to go. They'll discover what's going on within them and, uh, and again, what they need. And, and the therapist is more following instead of directing or leading like we do in most of our Western-oriented uh, kind of therapies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, which is nice because, you know, people are discovering things for themselves in a mindful state of consciousness, and so you don't have to talk them into anything or, or you know, float any interpretation that you have to get into a sense about or argument about, like, the person names their own experience um, as you, you know, help them be in touch with it. So maybe maybe this would be a good time to talk a little bit more about what happens in a session. Uh, obviously, no two sessions are alike, but if you want to maybe describe a specific situation to have a little bit more of a uh, hands-on sense of what it's like. Uh, yeah. Well, to go back to what you said before, it's absolutely true that no two people are alike. Uh, you know, it's like fingerprints. Um, there's no no two people in the world that think alike or move alike or have the same posture or walk alike. Um, I was struck by that just going down to the YMCA like I used to do when I was in Chicago and just watching how people work on a, you know, one of those elliptical machines, um, it's almost the same mechanical uh, routine. 
mean everybody's doing, but everyone has such a distinctive way of doing it. And so it's one of the great things about therapy is you, you absolutely never get bored because everyone is absolutely unique, and so you never know what you're going to find. And, and so that puts in a little plug there for thinking of people as non-linear systems, by the way, again, mm-hmm. not machines. Um, yeah. But anyway, if someone comes in the door, uh, uh, you know, they're usually often, you know, well, most often, you know, they're, they're, they're disturbed by something. They have some anxiety or depression or whatever or stress that they uh, they want to get at. And, and if they're willing to look at their own part in it, in, in their life, in their situation, then, you know, then, um, then the first part of a session would just be, you know, making enough contact and developing the therapeutic relationship to the point where they feel safe. Um, because you can't ask to go to the next step of asking someone to be mindful uh, unless they feel safe, because they. You know, if they have to keep one eye out on you to wonder what you're up to or what your game is or what your deal is that you might be running on them, you know, they really can't pay attention to their inner experience. So, so that's common to a lot of therapies, you know. Mm-hmm. Therapeutic relationship establishes safety. Um, but then if, if that's there, um, yeah, then the next phase would be in, 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 and let's say they presented with some kind of sadness, uh, the, the next stage in Hakomi would be not to simply talk about the sadness for, for very long, mm-hmm. to, to tell stories on top of stories. Um, uh, the, the next phase would be what we call accessing, which is inviting mindfulness and, uh, and teaching someone, and it takes more or less teaching depending on the person and what their background is. But, uh, but but teaching them to become mindful by, you know, inviting them to study, be curious about the sadness. And so, you know, many, many ways of doing that. And, you know, a simple way might be to say, like, well, you know, why don't we just slow down and notice, you know, where the sadness is in your in your body right now. And uh, if they're able and willing to do that, then all of a sudden they're not talking about a sad story, but they're... They're bringing their awareness to bear on some sadness, and you know maybe they notice something in their in their chest, and if they stay with it, uh, you know maybe they notice a little flushing or something around their their, their cheeks, uh, neck, um, and kind of like focusing. Um, you know they might discover like like oh you know sadness isn't quite the right word here, it's actually has more of a quality of grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you end up with that felt sense of rightness, like, oh yeah, grief is a better word. There's a felt sense of resonance with that, that word more than the word sadness. And of course this gets us into the issue of how words can be the birth or death of mm-hmm. meaning. Yeah. And, so... So I want to just take a, just a brief moment here to say, in a, again, in a very, very uh, beautiful way, you're describing that uh, what you're doing to help people come into mindfulness is um, the combination of slowing them down and yeah. then yeah. slowing them down and drawing their attention to uh, the inner experience and specifically the body. 
so that uh, without even having to say don't think or you know you're just actually bringing them to focusing on uh, the actual experience and seeing it unfold moment by moment. Yeah, exactly. So you, you haven't even used the word mindfulness or given any chalk talk or anything. Uh, but yeah, I just invited them into, uh, and again, you have to do more or less of that with the person depending on who they are. But yeah, just invite them into their immediacy of their experience. And then again, you have an underlying faith or trust that there is an organic wisdom at work here that wants to move things toward greater wholeness or complexity and so forth. Great uh, Dana Fosha and Gendlin and a number of people talk about it. Yeah, so and, and there, there is an impulse to heal. Yes, and you're also describing the that the attitude of yourself, the therapist, is uh, to not be so hung up on the words, but to see the words as something that also unfolds, because it's not that the words are very specific, but it's a it's a process of the interaction of the client with the words that are in their state of mindfulness, and then little by little things get a little bit more, uh, you know, in focus, like in focusing. Uh, yeah, that's right. So we talk a lot about the mind-body interface in Hakomi, uh, or 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 going back and forth between words, which express meaning, which of course is very important, and uh, and direct experience. And so we're always going back and forth, and we're always listening. Like, do the words really have a live quality to them that express meaning, or are they getting a little too much distance, a little too abstract, and if that's the case, then we invite people again back more into the into the body, the experience, uh, because we want the words to come out of the experience. We don't want to impose the words on the experience. Um, but so words are necessary, but it's tricky. Uh, and so, yeah, we're also going back and forth between bodily experience and uh, words that give meaning. Mm-hmm. But if you do that first stage uh, of accessing, of inviting mindfulness, then the, the next stage is to is what we call deepening, or just uh, trying to maintain the mindfulness. Uh, like the the um, the problem, or the is that most people, if you ask them a question like "Where is it in your body?", they'll go inside and get the answer, like, like I have this sense, you know, this sense in my chest, uh, and then they'll pop out an interpersonal consciousness to tell you the answer. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so the next stage, you know, call me, is, is to try to maintain the mindfulness by teaching someone, to, by saying to them, you know, I'd like you to report on your experience, but see if you can name it without leaving it. You don't have to come out of it to tell me about it. And and so, you know, they say, you know, I, I sense this thing in my chest, and so, you know, a deepening kind of response might be to say, like, like yeah, so what's the, what's the quality of that sense? You know, is it like a like a buzzing or a prickling or a this or that? Like, like the question doesn't matter. Uh, the function of the question matters that it just keeps them in their experience uh, longer and more deeply, and so they uh, again say like like yeah, I have the quality of, of, of grief, and uh, and so then again you might say, well let's, 
why you wouldn't say it, but you would do it. You'd want to go from the general to the specific, like, like oh, grief. And uh, like grief like uh, you lost something, or grief like you didn't get something, or, and again, you just float this little list, this laundry list, and, and you let it float. And, and the effect is to, they have to check their experience to see whether one of your possibilities is right and resonates or whether there's, you know, some other possibility that comes out of them that's right with the grief. And, uh, and so, you know, maybe they sense like you had something like, like I lost something somehow. And so again, now we're deepening and, and if we stay mindful with that, like, okay, so there's a sense of lostness, like let's hang out with this lostness. What's that like? What's your experience of that? And, and if you stay with it, then, you know, then it'll often deepen into maybe a core memory, uh, that underlies the, the grief, the sense of lostness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so um, uh, through this process, the role of the therapist is to uh, to help the client stay inside the experience, not to come out of it in order to report it. And by doing that, uh, you deepen the experience and uh, eventually have the possibility of reaching some more core beliefs. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and once you uh, once you get to a core belief, uh, then uh, that's a creative place where you, you can you know, the possibility arises of reorganizing around a, a more expanded belief. And, uh, and so again, maybe the core belief in this case we're talking about is that they were in a relationship, and you know maybe someone was lost, like a parent died or something, or a friend went away and it hurt them deeply, and, and so now they're afraid to enter deeply into relationships because they have this this core memory of, you know, when you enter in a relationship, you might be setting yourself up for deep grief and loss and hurt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then what we often do, and... Um, this is one of the things Kurtz uh, invented. I think is very brilliant. Uh, you, you'll often say that when, when you get a sense of what someone's core belief is, you'll often introduce to them as a mindful experiment and awareness. You often introduce to them the exact opposite belief of how they're organized. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, if you're right, if you if you have if you do if you have the belief, the belief is if you're getting the belief right and you come up with the opposite, then again, you're pretty much assured that you're going to come up with the barriers to taking in a new, more expanded belief and what's going on with that. And so in this case, you know, you might set up an experiment in awareness where you ask them to study themselves and what happens when you say to them that it's, you know, okay to enter deeply into new relationships. And then the part of them that is not okay with it will usually pop up like and say, like, oh, no, you know, don't do that or you can't do that because uh, it might be lost and you'll be devastated and you'll be, you know. So, again, it, it, it evokes the it evokes the core. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
by the way, that's a, that can be a misunderstanding of Hakomi. Uh, uh, if someone sees that we say something to someone, it's usually in a positive form, like, you know, it's okay to take in support or you're okay the way you are. Mm-hmm. We're not doing affirmations. We're not trying to talk somebody into something. We're trying to, if, if I say to you that you're, you're a good person and you kind of have a warm feeling in relation to that, that pretty much tells us that you have no issue with that. Like, right. you know you're a good person. But if we think that's an issue for you, and we say you're a good person, uh, again, we're not trying to talk you anything. We're trying to evoke a part of you that doesn't believe that. Yeah, and 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 it's happening at a stage where you're very mindful at this stage of the process. So, and you've been you, the process you've been describing is one of um, you know deepening the sense of resonance of the the client being able to listen to words and check the words versus his internal system or her internal system. So by the time you go with that statement, uh, that core statement, uh, you know, they're in a mode of being able to say this is me or this is not me. Yeah, 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 absolutely right. Um, And so it all depends on mindfulness. Like if if you say something like you're a good person to someone in ordinary consciousness, it, it, it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't have much of an effect uh, outside of normal social you know, discourse. And, and so, yeah, all these things depend on that experiential state of, uh, of mindful awareness of the present moment, uh, just like you said. Uh, and so, yeah, it's okay if I add in another piece here. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of how this all fits into me in terms of my, my background in theology as well as therapy and all that is that um, I'm really a, well, at, at base, I think I'm really a, you know, a sweet, gentle imperialist trying to take over the world. <laughs> uh, Comey is one of my tools. Um, and what I like to do is take over the world in the in the service of compassion. It's like you know, the Dalai Lama says that that's the next stage for uh, evolution for the culture, the world in general. We need to learn to be more compassionate. And uh, uh, and in the Christian heritage, my heritage, uh, compassion is no small thing to uh, talk about. Like in the in the Christian scriptures. Uh, the only person that's said to be compassionate at all in, the, in all, all the Christian scriptures is Jesus himself. You know, said so that he's compassionate. And the reason that's such a big deal is that the translation of that in Greek is being moved in the guts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so it's important for me in the overall scheme of things that we do things that raise consciousness which means uh, enhance our ability to be compassionate. And so when you can help someone in this therapeutic way be compassionate with their inner world, you know, whatever parts of them are disturbing, you know, maybe they're, they're not so compassionate with whatever's bothering them, their sadness or their anger, their rage or jealousy. If you can help them get to the point of bringing compassionate awareness to that, doing some healing, uh, 
uh, you know, there's a, a ripple that goes out for that, and, and hopefully you build on that so that, you know, better ability to be compassionate with yourself becomes uh, a better ability to be compassionate with others and um, and perhaps an enhanced awareness of how culture and social structures have impacted our you know, our abilities to be compassionate and and we keep growing in compassion so that you, you know you have compassion for yourself for your family for your loved ones and, and then going beyond that to your tribe if it ends with the tribe that's as far as our compassion goes then we end up with the tribal warfare we have in the world today mm-hmm. and so you know beyond your tribe to you know the larger community of tribes in the nation and uh, and beyond that uh, you know all the beings in the world and so there, there's an overall thrust of uh, uh, again trying to do whatever we can to move things forward you know expanded um, compassion so that when something happens to someone else in some other part of the world it's not just them over there it, it's really us and if we sense that which a lot of Ken Gilbert talks about a lot uh, if we sense that they're not us that, that they are us then we're actually moved to do physical uh, you know action in the world to, to remedy these things yeah yeah so it's all part of a larger scheme uh, yes so that, um, in a way, as you are um, doing therapy, it's not something that is, in a way, limited to therapy, but it has um, a connection with something larger, both in a spiritual sense, but also in a very practical sense of improving the world. Yeah, right. And, and that's why I really stayed with Akomi all these years, because not so much just of the technique, for, but because of This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.